what I'm going to talk about, out of what I'm most thinking about in my life. And if you were here very early this morning when we were uh, had our uh, precepts renewal hour, and talk about discriminating between uh, wise and unwise actions. And the idea that uh, it's complicated ethics and morality because what we think about sometimes, what I've been so sure this would be the right thing to do, even when we think about the political sphere now, people who hold views that I absolutely don't view have feel morally um, positive that their view is right, not looking to be recalcitrant or uh, you know just ornery. Everybody feels their view of the distribution of wealth, their view about uh, the rights of government to intrude on personal private lives of people, their view about women's rights to determine their own body. Everybody has a sense of a, of a perspective from which their point of view makes tremendous moral sense to them. I don't think anybody thinks I am doing this to make a mess out of the world. Everybody who has a passionate view believes that they are right. So I early on, um, before you all got there, I read this one, I'll just read the end of this line about, from the Buddha, it says, from one who is free from, who is, for one who is free from views, there are no ties. For one who is delivered by understanding, there are no follies. For those who grasp after views and philosophical opinions, they wander about in the world annoying people. <laughs> but I, I, just as I read it to you for the second time, I think to myself, their, their mind is not disturbed by follies. What's a folly? that disturbs the mind. So I've been carrying this around for two weeks because I think it's so funny. It's a cartoon out of The New Yorker. And I'll read you the caption right away. But you'll see that there are two women, sort of middle-aged women, sitting on a park bench, drinking coffee, probably, drinking something. And one of them is saying to the other one, I've secretly arranged to have my ashes carelessly spilled and stubbornly ground into my children's carpets. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? That's the biggest laugh that's happened here in a long time. But, so tell me, why is it so funny? Why is that so funny? <laughs> It's borderline they're macabre. Always, they're always thinking that they can do something with our kids. You know, maybe it'll rub off or something. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very provocative. I mean, we all laughed. Why is it? Why do we all not weep? <laughs> what, what's it meant? To, why, why is it funny? I think it's funny because it implies how stubborn we are till the very end. Till the very end, and how much, how much, how much we are willing to fill our mind with stuff like that. I mean, world is going down the tubes. And here are people, you know, I've secretly arranged to have my ashes carelessly spilled on and stubbornly ground into my children's carpets. 
I mean, I'm so mad at them that I would preoccupy the whole rest of my life and take pleasure in dying knowing that that's happening. When you think about it, would anybody really want to fill up their mind with that for their final you know, plans for what's going to happen to them? But to think what could hijack the mind in this moment, in this moment, this woman's mind is hijacked by her displeasure about it. You know, one th you take it for granted that it would go away. Uh, I'm, I'm very, I, I mentioned earlier in our prayers, and I'm very sad to tell you this counterpoint, but I thought about it. Was, there was a little 12-year-old girl in Nevada who was killed on a bicycle and lived just around the corner from my 12-year-old granddaughter. So... You know, you can visualize all of them riding around on their bicycles. And um, one of my grandsons, who uh, uh, now uh, who works for the Sarenville Police, heard a new, the news of it come in over the wire. Twelve-year-old girl in Nevada killed on her bicycle on such and such oh. a street. And he said the first thing I thought is he thought about his cousin. And the first thing that the mind thinks is, may it not be her. And then it thinks, what a relief, it's not her. But then it is somebody else's 12-year-old granddaughter. And it's, uh, you know, God forbid that should ever happen to anybody else, you know. That, but it happens all the time to somebody. And it's such a ubiquitous uh, vulnerability that we are all heir to. In this room, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. In this room, we have all lost something in a suddenly surprising and, at the time, tragic way. Because everything that we lose is, is tragic and sad. And sometimes we have time, we have a lead-up time, we know this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. And then it happens, so we're not, we're not shocked, we were expecting it. But it seems so wrong when it's shocking, when it happens out of time. And when it happens with no, vi with no villains, nobody was drunk, nobody was speeding, nobody wasn't paying attention. It was a time of day that the light was funny. She was driving, riding home with two friends. They crossed the street, two friends crossed the street. She stayed to stop to stop, talk to somebody. They rode on, she stayed and talked, she crossed. A car didn't see her and hit her. The driver didn't have any bad record. Driver wasn't speeding. It just happened, and you can't take it back. And you think to yourself, I think to myself, if we had such a thing like that in mind all the time, that could be me, could be anybody all the time, that all the stuff about uh, I'm all right, everything's all right, I've been to the dentist, my teeth are good, my health report is good, my cholesterol is 160, you don't know anything about anything, about who's going to come around the corner on a bike or who's going to ride up on, on the sidewalk in their car. Uh, the person who was driving that car has a completely altered rest of his life, completely altered, probably not a bad person, probably, I think, with an with a absolutely clean record. You don't know. We all are hanging on such a thread of vulnerability that we don't talk about between us. We talk about this kind of stuff. I'm going to have my ashes spilled on my children's carpet. It's so far from 
the, the reality of our life. First of all, there's not a reality that you can make those kind of plans, but so far from the reality of what's important. And that might be actually why this is funny to us. We like to fill our minds with this sort of stuff so that we don't have to think about when we say to people, I'll see you next week, we're not at all sure. Maybe. I, I, you know, I, 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 I live sometimes especially when I, if I go to visit, uh, if I go to Israel or if I'm anywhere in a religious context, a religious community, people do not say, I'll see you next week. They say, God willing, I'll see you next week. Mm. Because, and, you know, not, whatever you want to substitute there for the word God, if, you, if God is not a word that works for you, you could say, you know, things, all things being equal or in the event that, that nothing else happens. Kierkegaard used to say, I'll see you next week. <laughs> this was, you probably know, I bring it up from time to time. It's called the Kierkegaard joke, which itself is a joke, you know, because he wasn't such a funny guy, but uh, <laughs> he was known for saying, I'll see you next week if, as I leave your house now, a tile does not fall off from the roof and hit me in the head, and if, as I'm crossing the street, I'm not run over by a horse and cart, and if something else doesn't happen in the interim. But everything depends on everything. You know, when, when this young family was talking about it, which I always know secondhand from my daughter who lives around the corner, uh, they just moved to Nevada three weeks ago from uh, New Mexico because um, the father got, uh, was placed in another um, location in his business. So he was, he was made a manager in the Nevada office. So you think, oh, that's a good thing. And they got to rent a house in this nice area. And you say, oh, that's a good thing. And the children were very happy in school. Well, that's a good thing. And then this terrible thing happened. And now they're thinking of moving back because they really can't stand being around. So we'll see what happens with them. But then they think, if only she hadn't been riding her bike that day. Then they think, if only she had kept on riding with her two friends. They think, if only we hadn't changed and moved to, New, to California. If only we had moved to another neighborhood. If only, if only, if only. In any of our lives, if we had made one separate step, everything else could be completely different forever. You don't know. If only I hadn't got on that plane or this plane. When you think about the... the, the the Buddha said that the most complex thing to understand is the truth of karma. And uh, I used to think when, when I first didn't know very much Dharma, I would think that karma had to do with uh, kind of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. People would say, well, look at so-and-so, he's getting away with so much um, villainy in this life. How could that be? It's not fair. And they say, well, in the next life, he's probably going to have tragedy, and then he'll understand in the next life. But that's actually not a view of karma that's understood by scholars, who, Buddhist scholars, um, who understand karma. It's not an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's really, the word karma means action. And what the Buddha taught about action are, are two important things. One is that every action and even every non-action, so you can't get away with it, creates something. You know, I, that 
<laughs> one of my grandsons said recently, I don't think I'll vote because I can, which really sends me off into you know, <laughs> soapbox number 83 about why not voting is the same as, is a vote for something else. But this, but this, but. You have to vote. Your great-grandparents came to this country because in this country you could vote. You have to vote. Uh, not acting is also an action. So the thing is, we, every moment to moment, what we do matters. When you think about that, you think, oh, you know, what should I do? You get caught. So that one aspect of where I see down the line I wanted us to be talking about was since we're really not in control of the... I, I had to. I was writing. I was writing down what I wanted to talk about, and I said, um, uh, "I used to teach, and you probably remember it if you're here long enough. When our minds are clear, we behave impeccably. I love that. I wrote it in a book somewhere. I thought, aha, see, that's the summary of every mm -hmm. of the whole thing. I think it was 15 words. When our minds are clear, we behave impeccably. No, that was the eight word." It was the eight-word summary of the truth of everything. <laughs> but I'm not sure of it anymore. <laughs> so, and it floated up in my mind. Because impeccably means exactly right in a way that doesn't cause anything. But I might, my mind might be clear. And I might make a judgment about what's happening out of that clarity. But I can't be so clear that I know every implication of what's going on. And I might, be, I might say something that might actually hurt somebody's feelings and instead of soothe them. Or um, I thought, I'm not so sure you can behave impeccably. I'll tell you a story within a story. Here's another way that I, I, I read it. I'm not sure I can find exactly the page, but... I'll tell you the story in it. This is a book called The Moral Molecule that I'll tell you more about in a little bit because I've been reading it the last two weeks. Uh, this is a, uh, uh, a man who's a, um, a researcher at, uh, UC, at uh, Claremont Graduate College, and he's the director of the Claremont Center for Neuroeconomic Studies. Uh, uh, he has a blog at Psychology Today called The Moral Molecule. He's got doctorates in everything. He looks like, looks like he just had his bar mitzvah yesterday. He's so young. <laughs> He's got way too many credentials for such a young man. <laughs> Probably is that good looking. Anyway, uh, it, it's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a, it, it's a book that reads quite, uh, uh, quite easily. He writes jauntily and interestingly. And he's telling the story about a man named Wesley Aubrey, I'm sure I got that right, who was in the newspapers some years ago in New York because he was standing on a New York subway um, waiting for the train, in the, in, in the underground subway, waiting for a train with his two daughters, four and six, I think. He's a construction worker in New York. And uh, just as a train is beginning to hurtle into the, into the station, a man not, not far from where he is has an epileptic seizure and falls into the tracks. And uh, 
He says to the people standing there next to him, watch my girls, and jumps into the tracks, lies down on top of him in between those rails, holds his head down, keeps his head down, and the train, screeching its brakes, comes into the station, but it can't stop, so seven cars run over him, screeches to a stop, and you know, people are waiting outside, and his voice calls up and he says, we're all right. And they uncouple a train, and here he is with this guy. And so they take him out. He becomes the subway hero of New York. And, they, uh, and he's in all the newspapers. And people ask him, um, I, I don't remember exactly, the, you know, but why did, why did you, you know, what made you decide to do that? And he said, well, I didn't decide to do it. I just did it. Um, and so everybody decided that uh, he was, there are some kind of people who just do things like that, who are just so selfless. And it was because, you know, I'm sure a wonderful man. But I, when I was reading this book yesterday, they bring him up because they bring him up lots of times. Let me see if I can find. <clears throat> Choosing to be altruistic. Yeah. Then he, here, here's a particular page. Choosing to be altruistic or even heroic and overriding our self-protective anxiety is another matter, and whether we will sacrifice to help another depends on our degree of closeness. We would run into the burning building without a second thought to save our own child. Soldiers sacrifice themselves to save the buddies in their unit who become their brothers in arms. Although people still do it, we're less likely to take a risk to help a stranger, and being in a fear-provoking place is not the only obstacle. The likelihood of altruistic action can decrease simply depending on how much we're caught up in our own problems at the moment. If the subway hero's daughters had been so young that he had had to worry about them toddling onto the tracks, he might not have jumped to the young man's aid. If he'd been caught up in some intense discussion with one of his children, that too might have precluded his spontaneous action. If instead of working in construction, he'd been a high-status investment banker who had somehow wandered into the subway, his, <laughs> his feel, this is interesting, his feeling of social distance from the man in need might have gotten in the way. Think about that. <coughs> it's because of their ability to set aside all their self-interested or self-involved concerns, fully, fully experience an empathic connection, and then risk everything on behalf of someone else that we call people like Wesley Autry, the subway hero, heroes. And, there's, and so he goes on to talk about that there's a... Uh, uh, a particular experience that we have over and over again in our life where we are helpful or generous or good or kind and we get it mirrored back to us and what and that mirroring brings a, elicits a response of oxytocin he's a biologist he's been studying oxytocin makes us feel good. Oxytocin generates the empathy that drives moral behavior, which inspires trust, which causes the release of more oxytocin, which creates more empathy. 
Oxytocin is uh, most thought about. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, the presence of oxytocin in the bloodstream is much higher after a pleasant and gratifying sexual encounter where the other person looks better to you right away. And whatever it was that, whatever it was that previously annoyed you about that person is less annoying at that point. Isn't that true? I mean, uh, you know, if you've just eaten a, th a big dinner and had enough to eat, everybody looks less annoying. That when, when your body feels better, it's its own availability to respond with warmth to the other person is different. It works fantastically well when you have a baby because fortunately, you, you that that feeling of great emotional release of having a baby also, which is pleasurable in itself because you're finished, also is accompanied by oxytocin in the body, which causes you to think that this is the most beautiful baby in the world and no one ever had one like that. And you are prepared to sacrifice yourself for two minutes after you met it because it's the only one in the world. For most of us, for most women who have good bonding, um, um, uh, experiences. And the more you have those experiences, the more you tend to behave in other situations in ways that elicit that. It, it, it starts the learning experience that says, when you behave in a beneficent way, if you give to somebody, then they stimulate these good feelings in you and you stimulate back in them. And it goes back and forth like a, a vibrating arc. And you feel good. Generosity makes you feel good. I recently heard somebody talking about her or his, I don't even remember, teacher, who gave as a meditation instructions. You know, often when we give instructions, I'm giving less and less, I notice, as we go along. Less and less technical, do this, do this, do this. I'm, I'm more happy saying relax and things will take care of themselves. But um, this person did give an instruction. He said, sit down. And just as you close your eyes, before you start to bring your attention to your breath or your body, bring your attention to some kind, good, some good thing that you recently did, which is usually a kind act. Think of something good that you recently did. And people discover that they feel good when they think about that. And it, it brings back in them the memory of it and the look of the people that they did the good thing for. <coughs> and the oxytocin comes up in them. And they feel, they feel better in their body and mind, and they therefore feel more confident about what's going to be their meditative experience. So this particular teacher said, you want to start with confidence that you can do this, whatever it is. So you, you, you build up, you, you begin by saying, you know, I have felt good before. And this is this very morning when I smiled at the dry cleaner who didn't have the coat that they said was going to be finished by today. And I said, don't worry about it, I'll come back tomorrow. And everybody in the dry cleaners looked at me like I was a hero for not making a scene. <laughs> and, and that's true, you know, you could get to be a hero on a very little thing. But then you feel good and you feel good, then you approach the meditation for whatever reason with confidence. So I got off into talking about this because I, I said if we saw clearly, we'd behave impeccably. But 
maybe, but maybe those examples that he gave in the book, if he were talking to his child, he wouldn't have seen so clearly. Or if his children were younger, he might have seen even more clearly that if he left them to jump in the tracks, these babies might toddle into a track. But it's in my own experience, I'm thinking, it's, I, I, don't, I don't want to go for impeccability because I'm not always impeccable. Uh, I'd like to think it was a, a workable thing. Uh, I'd like to have a slogan that kept me, that I could believe. I'm not doing the grammar on this right. I'm changing the sentence from, this is what I believe, when my mind is clear, I behave impeccably, to when my mind is clear, my intention is for the good. That's what I'd like to say, because I don't always behave impeccably. And what I would like, and, and so I don't want to set that up as a, um, as a goal that, uh, uh, that I'll feel that I have not achieved some achievable thing. I haven't achieved sainthood. I haven't gotten far enough in my practice. I should try harder. I should try harder. I think from what I'm reading more and more uh, these days, that the act of trying to achieve, a, uh, to become a better person, is, itself sets up a striving in the mind that is antithetical to a relaxed mind. I don't want to strive every day in every way. I'm going to be better than yesterday. Uh, every day, I'd like to have a good intention. I'd like to have a good intention. And I thought about that a lot because we started with the precepts this morning. And the precepts really are intentions. I wonder if instead of saying, I undertake the vow or I undertake the precept, we shouldn't say, um, I renew my intention too. So then I could say, you know, I, I always have that intention. And sometimes I, I really fulfill it perfectly and sometimes not so much. Maybe I have a headache. Maybe I've just gotten some very disquieting news on a, on a phone conversation and I can't be fully present for what's ever going here. I heard a story. I, I, I thought about this while I was preparing these notes for today. And I thought, I wonder if I should tell this story. Maybe, well, I'm about to tell it, obviously. So. <laughs> But I think it's such a good story. You'll tell me later and maybe you'll say, oh, we wish it weren't in the archives and then you shouldn't have done it. I could talk about other things that I've got, but I want to tell you this story because it made a big impression on me and I heard it 30 years ago probably. I heard this story from, probably from my friend Jack. It could have been from Wes, but Jack and Wes and other people had gone to Asia with video equipment to film various uh, teachers and various sages and various people who were renowned. And I'm glad that they did, and I'm glad that that film exists. And the wee part of one wee story was that they had uh, made an appointment to have an interview with Mother Teresa at, say, 5 o'clock on a certain afternoon. And they came to uh, her convent where she was, and the people who answered the door said, yes, yes, you, you know, we, we, do, we do have it down that you're coming. So they trooped in several people, and Jack tells the story of Wes with a lot of camera equipment. And, 
Anyway, they go to Mother Teresa's private quarters, and they, the nun that opens the door and says, Reverend Mother, the people who were supposed to be here from the United States, people from the United States with the television crew are here to interview you. And here they troop in with their stuff. And he said, you could see that either she didn't know we were coming or she had forgotten we were coming. And it's the end of a day. She's Mother Teresa, she probably had a long day. It's the end of a day. <laughs> said, you could see that she wasn't expecting us and that she wasn't for a moment pleased. And that you could see that look of, uh, went across her face. Said, but you could see that the look went across her face and she took a breath and picked it up and they went on with the interview. And that is a million times a better story to me than Mother Teresa day and night never flickered a moment of dismay across her face. But maybe I shouldn't say that. She's, she's, she's been canonized. Should you not say that? Are we supposed to say that the saints never for a moment had a moment of dismay, that all dismay was uprooted? I don't believe that. Maybe that canonically that's supposed to work that way. But I think on the realm of the human, dismay arises and then good intention overrides it. What do you think? Mm -hmm. So it's a bad thing to tell that story or not? No. So I want to tell you two more stories because I, I actually had, um, these have directly to do with, um, with the, the, the question of what's, uh, what's moral and what's ethical and what do we think. I read two books. One of them is called The Age of Desire. And honestly, I have forgotten who wrote it. It's a contemporary novel. And it's a novel about uh, the, um, the writer, Edith Wharton. Everybody here heard of Edith Wharton, Ethan, Ethan Fromm. Um, the other is a book called um, Sutton. And uh, it's written by... Um, a man whose name is J.R., I don't know it's a man, I think so, J.R. M. Moringer, M-O-E-H-R-I-N-G-E-R. -E and I've been reading it uh, on my Kindle for two days without a stop because I'm completely fascinated with it. Um, I was going to read perhaps a little bit from it. Who here heard of Willie Sutton? Anybody heard of Willie Sutton? You got to be a little bit old. Willie Sutton. <laughs> I'm older than you, so I can say that. I'm one year. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Willie Sutton was born in 1901. He died in uh, 1968, uh, not so long after he was let out of prison for uh, the uh, for the longest time he was ever in. For 17 years, he was in. But he was in since early on and, and busted out of several prisons. And he was notorious. He was called Sutton the actor, Sutton the, uh, well, mostly as the actor. But uh, he was a bank robber. He was mostly known for his famous answer to the, he said he, he never killed anybody. Never killed anybody in one of his discussions in the book. The book happens, it's a fictitious account, I'm sure, but the, the book begins on the day he's let out of jail, 17 years after he's served. 
and he spends uh, uh, the next couple of days with a reporter and a photographer from a newspaper who have exclusive rights to his stories. So in flashbacks and, and uh, contemporary dialogue, he tells the story of his life. And at one point, he says, um, I never killed anybody. I uh, never worked with anybody who had a family that they had to support. Uh, if in the middle of a bank robbery, he only did robberies, in the middle of a bank robbery, uh, if a person took ill or a baby started to cry or a woman went into labor, I called off the event. Uh, <laughs> I never wanted to hurt anybody. They said, so uh, why did you rob banks? And he said, because that's where the money was. Uh, and that's actually his famous line. When you read it, and you read the beginning of his life growing up in um, East New York in the beginning of the 1900s in such squalor, uh, in, uh, in a terrible neighborhood of poverty-stricken uh, Irish immigrants where violence and squalor and hunger and beatings, where life was really, did everybody here read Angela's Ashes? Mm -hmm. I couldn't read it. It was so bad. I read and read and read. It was fantastic writing, but so painful. This is the same sort of painful about the, the situation that people lived in. And he gets through to eighth grade, graduates with all A's, spends all his time in college, in, incarcerated, reading Cicero, all the great philosophers, reading philosophy, reading Tennyson, reading poetry, reading great novels, becomes actually very sophisticated and speaks out of that way. So he's a bright man. And uh, at one point, the, the two reporters, maybe this is the part I've got marked up, who are with him are saying, but you know, it, it wasn't moral to be robbing banks, to steal money from banks. Well, Maybe, maybe it's, I'm not going to be able to find it. says the number. It says locate the number, 13735. It's a little hard to read out of go to number. It's a little hard to do this on. It's easier to underline in a book. Okay, let's see if this works. Anybody who has a Kindle and knows how hard it is to do this? Three, seven, three, five. Okay, now let's say, let's find that. See if anything happens. <laughs> okay, we'll close that. And then, okay, now, ta da! Let's see if it happens. Go. Go. Forget it. He said, he sounds like any, he, he say, they said, but you know, it, it's immoral to, you know, to steal from, you're stealing from those banks. He said, no, not really. The banks are stealing the money from the people. And he goes into a description of the perfidy of banks that sound like the, uh, the, the, the Occupy movement. 
He sounds completely right on with modern day economics. It's the banks that are stealing from the people. The banks are a great fraud. They take people's money, they put it in faulty investments, then they default, then they get bailed out by the government. He goes into long, very clear uh, expressions of, it sounds like Robin Hood, really. You know, I'm doing people a favor by really robbing these banks that are really the... Really, I really, the reason I tell you this whole story is because he was a bank robber, and he stole a lot from banks. And, I can, and I'm, as I'm reading it, I'm rooting for him to get out. And for, because he's, he's, he sounds to me like Robin Hood, like a person who wanted to go straight and got every bad deal in the world from the beginning, who fell in love with a woman and actually ended up in jail because of her because she tempted him to steal from her father's safe so they could run away together. Uh, I found him a very um, empathic person. I mean, I felt a lot of empathy. At the same time, I'm reading Age of Desire. <coughs> Age of Desire is about Edith Wharton, distinguished writer. Edith Wharton uh, married uh, in the beginning of the 20th century a man that seemed appropriate for her position it was a very class society early on. It's surprising because in one, in, in one century, I realized that what was taken for granted about being an upper class, that you would have cooks and, and people who drove you, people who worked for menial wages, people who were happy to serve you in a way that we just don't have. Uh, a stratified society like that anymore. So, and I think, wow, I, you know, that's so near to us. So she's, she marries a man with a lot of money with whom she never has an intimate relationship. And they lived in kind of an armed, nasty camp together, barely being nice to each other for a long time. And then in one of the yearly back and forth going to summer in France and winter in in Boston and summer in France and winter on Martha's Vineyard and uh, or uh, uh, Cape Cod, she falls in love with a man who's uh, clearly a kind of, um, what do they call him, a boulevardier, a guy that, uh, a, um, a rogue, a good-looking, well-spoken guy who makes his living preying off rich women because he can seduce them and tempt them into illicit love affairs with them and then hold them hostage and get money from them. So it's not, um, you know, he, he can see early on that, he's, that these are his designs. And it's a true story because it's written, it's made out of the letters that Edith Wharton and her lifelong governess and best friend wrote to each other. So it's written, so I'm reading this and here Edith Wharton, renowned for her work and her artistry, is carrying on behind the scenes with this other guy who is carrying on with her, and she's a married woman, treating her husband terribly, so self-absorbed, so interested in her own fulfillment. Finally, I feel like a woman, and I am annoyed with her. You know? <laughs> so I'm not annoyed with Willie Sutton, who's robbing banks, and I'm annoyed with Edith Wharton, who's uh, robbing her husband of esteem, uh, who's uh, robbing herself of dignity, whatever it is. 
But I, all I was thinking as I was going along is both of these are, are ways with, with the Willie Sutton um, agonizing that he, couldn't it come out better for him. And with Edith, I'm thinking, oh, she got too much fame. Look what she was doing. She was really so not nice to her, her people working for her, so not nice to her husband. And then I realized after a while, what do I know? You know, in the end, she found that she used it, her vast riches to found all these schools and hospitals for needy women and children in Paris. She wrote beautiful books. Maybe she wouldn't have done that had she not had this outrageous love affair that made her the talk of Paris. Maybe that was what really, how do I know anything about anybody? Why should I spend any time in my mind? She's dead. What good does it do if I sit and in my mind have those judgments about her, very not good, very not good, and in my mind have other judgments about Willie Sutton and judgments about the penal system and judgments about this and judgments about that. I could read both of those things and say, isn't that interesting? Look at that, how lives turn out. People do one thing, then they do another thing. I'm imagining as I'm saying that, um, Mahagosananda saying, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. Why doesn't my mind do that all the time? You know, I could read books, I could read this, I could read that. But the thing that I, was, the thing that I came away that I really wanted to talk about is, um, what could, what could we really say definitive about morality? Was it immoral of him to rob the banks? Was it immoral of Edith Wharton to have this uh, clandestine love affair and destroy her husband and, uh, or what he thought about himself? What's immoral? Uh, or is morality a made-up thing? Uh, is morality a judgment? Or, I don't know. Anyway, I talked enough, but I, we have five minutes for you to talk back. What do you think? <laughs> okay, so three minutes talk to each other about those two questions. What do you think about morality? Is it a judgment? Is it real? Can you actually have a moral judgment? Is it all up for grabs? What do you think? Have a, have a person next to you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.